Yeah, it feels like that that filmmakers like Ron Howard, obviously J.D. Vance as a person, can't resist the hyper-individualist narrative of, you know, American right. exceptionalism. I think that's right. really what this comes down to. I mean, hey, everybody, who's ready for a movie episode from a range? It's an experiment. It might feel weird and off-topic, but it's happening right now! Movies on range. Ooh. Before you say anything, before you jump in the comments, yes, I know I have the voice of an angel and my talents are worthy of the stage, which is why actually this will be the final episode of Range. I'm going to uh, take my talents to Broadway. Just kidding. I did that for me and only me because of how excited I am about this episode. This wasn't for you. This was for me. Ever have that feeling where you just get so caught up in the moment that you break spontaneously into song and just literally compose something out of nothing? That is what happened to me right there a second ago. I'm glad you were here to experience it. Listening back to this interview of two dudes being bros talking about the thing they love, movies, the cinema. And you know what? I just felt moved, slain by the spirit of film. Welcome to episode 22, everybody. That music you heard was the best television intro ever written in the history of television, not just the 80s. It ran from, I think, 84 to 99. That is the original theme song of Siskel and Ebert, a song I know so well that the mere sound of the bell and the opening alto saxophone riff triggers a Pavlovian response in me to just sit down and watch some damn movies, you know? The other voice you heard at the beginning was Benji Wade, friend, brother in arms, compatriot in the trenches of the creative community here in Spokane, actual filmmaker, which will be a helpful counterpoint to my enthusiastic connoisseur with lots of opinions, but no actual knowledge of the craft of filmmaking. We make a good team, somebody who knows something and a guy who doesn't know much at all about anything. It's a sort of both sides perspective we like to give you here on Range. And yes, this is a departure from our usual fare, but hopefully a fun one. And if it goes well, we'll do more of them. You know, could be a series uh, or could not. This could go awfully, as I suggested in my song. Uh, there's no question this is a good episode and it's a good verging on great discussion. Whether or not movies are a thing we do on Range, yeah, kind of remains to be seen. But, you know. Done now 22 of these things, still kind of feeling our way through it, figuring out what works, what doesn't. Maybe this will work. And I'm not kidding. This wasn't a bit. I love movies so much. And I also think they're one of the few final ways, and you know, this goes for like prestige TV as well, but one of the few remaining culturally galvanizing forces, things that can, you know, draw people from all over this massive nation of ours to sit down and have a conversation about something, something that isn't like orange man bad or just purely partisan politics, right? The horse race nonsense that I'm so sick of. It's also been a very heavy year. It is now the interregnum between Christmas and New Year's. So I thought it'd be nice to take a break from the soul crushing dread, kick our feet up and just do something a little bit lighter. Not that it's like 
fluffy because there's actually a really good conversation to be had, but it's not about stuff that's like absolutely immediate. Although it is definitely affecting Spokane, the ideas put forth in this movie affect everything in America, in my opinion, a very, very negative way. It's the latest in one of the most pernicious narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves. And it's so pervasive, it almost doesn't come across as political, even though it absolutely is. I think Slavo Žižek says ideology is the water you swim in. So like if you're a fish, you don't realize you're in the water because it's all around you. It's hard to identify our ideology sometimes. This precisely is the ultimate illusion. Ideology is not simply imposed on ourselves. Ideology is our spontaneous relationship to our social world, how we perceive its meaning, and so on and so on. We, in a way, enjoy our ideology. This is one of those films. It's so deeply ideological, and the ideology it espouses is so pervasive that we almost don't see it as political, but it very, very much is. I'm going to get into like my analysis right now, and I don't want to do that. I've actually recorded parts of this intro several times where I just start going off. But I don't want to like step on Benji's toes. I don't want to preempt the awesome conversation we have. So I'll just leave it at that. And good Lord, I just realized I haven't said what the movie is. It is Hillbilly Elegy, directed by Ron Howard, starring Glenn Close and Amy Adams and some kid, uh, based on a book written by J.D. Vance, a memoir about his traumatic childhood, written kind of while he was still a traumatized child, if I'm being honest. It's kind of the perfect movie to begin this potential range movie series with, just to test it out because of all the things we just talked about. It's very on brand for the podcast and the ideology that underpins it affects our neighbors every single day. Poor folks in this area are affected by the ideology espoused by this book and movie, talking about the movie based on a book, everybody as much as the poor folks who live in the area that the book takes place in, Southeast Ohio, Kentucky, Appalachia, the Rust Belt. The details are different, but the story we tell ourselves as a nation about poverty is very, very similar. The only thing that's less than ideal about this movie <laughs> is that uh, it's not very good. You're not gonna come out of this conversation, which is very good, I think, in my opinion, you're not going to come out of this conversation fired up to go watch a really awesome movie because the movie is pretty awful. And not because of its politics. There are plenty of reactionary movies that are a hell of a lot of fun, like 300, for example, fashy as hell, but it's still a really, really enjoyable movie. This is not that at all. It is, in fact, bad. Not like gloriously bad, not incredibly bad, not the kind of bad that you have to rewatch. It's not The Room. It's not snakes on a plane. It's the boring kind of bad. But that's what you got to do sometimes. Sometimes the things that you need to talk about the most, most urgently, are the worst things our culture produces. But it leads to a good conversation. So let's just get to it. Me and Benji down by the movie yard coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 22, more like hillbilly smellogy. All right, everyone, welcome to a special edition of Range. This might end up coming out around Christmas. Uh, maybe not, within a couple weeks of Christmas. 
And it's the format's going to be a little weird today. I have with me my uh, friend and partner in crime, Benji Wade. He uh, we work together at Treatment, the creative firm, and a uh, fellow co-working. We are also big nerds and uh, have very opinionated about most media, maybe especially film. And we tend to have it's kind of interesting. We have I would say the same worldview, but intensely different opinions about things. Does that sound about right to you? I don't know. It depends on what the topic is, how intensely different the opinions are. Yeah. About politics stuff, we tend to be pretty close. But about movies and media and stuff? It, uh, yeah, I think it's more about the, the art itself. So I think yeah, this will be a pretty that, interesting. For sure. We also have kind of similar backgrounds. Like I've, I've talked a lot on this pod about how I grew up kind of poor in Chatteroy, Washington. And, you know, I didn't have a ton of money growing up. My parents were awesome. My extended family was awesome. I was surrounded by generational trauma and poverty in, in North Spokane County. Benji had a little bit of the same in uh, various <laughs> parts unknown Alaska. Yeah, Fairbanks. So I grew up in the middle of Alaska, which is probably the, the very worst of Alaska. It was a <laughs> staging area for Prudhoe Bay. So all the oil oh, that was yeah. being extracted from the earth up north in Alaska, Fairbanks was basically put on the map as a place to like park shit when people were on their way up there to extract said oil. Right. Slash military bases. That was the reason for its existence as a, as a town that grew to, I don't know, 100,000 people probably live in the, wow. they call it the borough. Um, Just either either drilling oil or spying on the Ruskies. Yeah. Well, these days, I don't know, the oil thing is kind of goofy, but still plenty of it. I mean, yeah. Halliburton's like one of the biggest employers for oil and so forth. But And then my family, actually, you know what's really funny watching this movie is I'm like, my family comes from Southeast Ohio and Missouri. Oh, both. wow. So, I don't think I realized. Yeah, we're, we're Appalachian folk. We're hillbilly folk, man. <laughs> we're hill people, as uh, Glenn Close doing her impersonation of Bubbles hill from bit. Trailer Park Boys would have... <laughs> She kind of looks like Bubbles from Taylor. Oh, it was the very first thing I did. I was like, Ray, she's Bubbles. She's like, Bubbles? And she goes, do you mean like The Wire? <laughs> like, no, different, different Bubbles. Oh, man. So we are, we've already started giving it away. Whoops. Today, we're talking about uh, Hillbilly Elegy, which is a movie that just came out on Netflix. Uh, it's Ron Howard. But I would say a director who is more famous than he deserves, I would say. I kind of agree with that. Sort of a... Uh, Oscar winner, but sort of middle brow director. But it's based on a book of the same name that was a, a memoir. So what is? How does this fit in with range? One, I think it's, you know, not, well, I guess Benji's hill folk or descended from hill folk. Didn't realize that. Didn't realize it till today, probably. <laughs> but you know, when I I've spent a little bit of time in Southeast Ohio, where the sort of the gateway to Appalachia as well, and. There's a lot of parallels between the sort of rural poverty we see around here, the sort of rural poverty you find in the West, and the rural poverty that you find in these sort of rural spaces and small towns where extractive economies like oil, I obviously meant coal, uh, or you know, steel manufacturing, came and went and then left just sort of a, a cycle of ruin. And in the book, probably more than the movie, it was also like a pretty ideological project. J.D. Vance was the writer. It's a memoir that he wrote when he was still like in uh, law school at Yale. So it's like, how much distance can you really have on your traumatic youth when you're still kind of a traumatized youth? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. but, but this book is published in 2016, right before the election. And then all of a sudden it becomes literally the darling of the chattering classes. The moment Trump wins as a way of sort of explaining why Trump won. Like all these white working class, you know, racist hillbillies, yeah. why did they all go for Trump? Good news, liberal elites. J.D. Vance is here to tell you in hardback. Yeah. And so then, you know, 100, I'm 100, 155 miles to, to the east of Middletown. Really? So, is where your family's from. So I'm, I guess I'm every bit as hill folk as, as J.D. Vance was. <laughs> right. And that was the other thing. It was like, we're from, we're Appalachia Hill Country, but he actually grew up in Southeast Ohio. And there's like, 
it's it's steel not coal over there and so there's there is like a difference that is is a cultural difference people thought he was kind of a fraud for claiming kentucky when he's actually southeast ohio Mm -hmm. but then the movie comes out and hollywood's nothing if not good at exploiting a trend so you know it comes out right in time for this election four years later almost to the day and so we thought we would get together and just chat about this thing both as a piece of art and as a political treatise kind of a polemic and just see where it gets us so did you read the book? Or no, you, but I, I sort of like a, a I sort of cliff notes blinkist or anything on it. Kind of, yeah. I <laughs> yeah. like I, I read enough to know that I would just I was already upset enough in 2016. I didn't need to be upset again, you know, by by reading the book. Yeah. Uh, but did you? I, no, I listened to an interview with him on the Ezra Klein podcast, and probably that that same summer before the election, right yeah. around the time that Klein was also interviewing people like Hillary Clinton. And I found the topic already to be a little nauseating in the way that the guy talked about it and framed his perception of the Hill folk and how what he thought their values were and how he thought they looked at the political landscape at the time or whatever. I already viewed it with a little bit of suspicion, right? Of like, this doesn't totally add up for me. But I was just kind of curious if you knew any more because from everything I can kind of gather, it's like people who didn't like the book, they think the movie is like the book on steroids. It's hmm. it's just much, much worse. Anything that you found somewhat noxious about the book, you'll find the movie much, much worse. It's In what bad. way? Because I actually found it kind of like it stripped the politics out. Um, well, well, that, but in terms of like embellishment of certain details. Oh, well, it's, yeah. it's, they completely made the, the whole central conceit of the movie is made up. Let's, Which, we should start there. Should we start there? Because that's, that's the Ron Howard special side of this of this movie all right so maybe what we should do is just briefly <laughs> so we're gonna keep this to an hour too because last time benji and i did a crit podcast on a different <laughs> podcast it was like three and a half hours yeah, uh, over multiple episodes and it was fun if you want to you could dig back through the archives of the fellow friends podcast to find a four-hour Don't dissertation on on Watchmen's, on wa- Watchmen's hbo's watchman with, yeah. fr- with our friend Autumn. <laughs> on yeah. one episode of hbo's watchman <laughs> yes it's true uh, so maybe what we could do is just do a quick summary and maybe I'll just let you take that away since you know the, uh, the, the Ron Howard special sauce, but, um, <laughs> let's talk about what, you know, in brief terms, what it's about. Cause there's really not much here. It's a very, it's a, it's a memoir about one single thing. It, it's extremely straightforward. I mean, I think that's the problem that I had with the, the movie, uh, 15 minutes in my first note was I have no idea what this movie's about. <laughs> um, it hadn't really, the way that it was edited together, um, just in terms of like structure, like scene creation, like the way that they would build, a particular moment or hang on a particular narrative beat like none of it was actually going anywhere it starts with this um this preacher doing a I, I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be a recording of an actual sermon or something or if it was supposed to be like a, a radio talk show i tried, or, to, I tried to look it up because it, it got me too and is I was it fictitious like, I, I couldn't tell i couldn't figure it out mm. it makes me think it must be fictitious because somebody would have transcribed this nonsense otherwise i think so it's got this preacher doing this kind of um like a radio preacher fire and brimstone thing yeah and and with a this uh, just a hint of prosperity gospel, gospel yeah, stuff, absolutely. but also like more than a hint of tabula rasa manifest destiny bullshit. You know, I actually transcribed it because I couldn't help myself. It's like the magnificence of God's creation, the bounty of this earth, blah, 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 blah. And though we may feel embittered, want to rail at injustice, even in our God, and though others may scorn our beliefs, let us hold faith not only in that God, but in ourselves and in our character, our ability to rise, yea, to fly. 
be this flight generations in the making, be it delayed so long, our faith is bound. I mean, uh, let that faith never be broken. And then it, it trails off with a line at a time when families across the world are falling apart. And so it, it, set, it sets in motion the like, what's going to happen? You're locating this this young dude, J.D. Vance, the character in the setting of it's caught between. He grew up in Kentucky, but then moved to Middletown, Ohio, I think, when he was a boy or something. But I think his family was from Kentucky and moved. His grandma and grandpa moved there. To, for a steel job, and then he just would like spend summers in Kentucky. Yeah, and it's doing the VO thing a bit. It's like doing like voiceover narration voiceover, about yeah. this is how I grew up. And he, you know, he very quickly like uh, sets in place this kind of ABC after school special vibe. It also had the production values of like, I felt like it would have been like produced by the 700 Club or <laughs> or maybe like Kevin Sorbo, um, like one of those, uh, the Christian films that come out every few years and just get put on Netflix or something. Yeah, yeah. It was, you know, I actually thought that opening montage that sort of ends on somebody that was related to J.D. Vance, where but I didn't know if it was like, was this an actual, is this an actor or is this like somebody they brought in from Kentucky and just like had them sit there and listen to this radio show? Like, so there was a there was a bit of like cinema verite at the beginning, like, oh, this feels like they're just driving through these country roads and, and photographing people. Uh, but then it kind of ended there for me. It was like all of a sudden it just becomes this very, like you're saying, flat, flat shot, very flat, flat yeah. directed. And I don't know what any of these characters motivations are. But yeah, so J.D., you know, it starts off in Kentucky, like as advertised, but then it immediately shifts to Ohio. And, you know, he gets beat up in a watering hole in Kentucky and we don't know why. And you're supposed to get a sense that like his kin come to his aid. And that's supposed to tell you something deep about like familial Char- connections and character, maybe. But none of these things connect. But none of it flattering either. Like you're not looking at that going, yeah, that's how a family sticks together is by a grown man punching a child in the stomach. Like, right. That's yeah. it. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, he gets, he gets young J.D. Vance gets jumped by maybe tween like high school, middle school. And then his family comes to his aid and like his like 40 year old uncle just like punches a kid in the gut when he gets lippy and whatever. But but the, the bootstrap narrative starts really quickly, though. Um, yeah. It, it, it then... I, I think after the scene that you're describing, we're suddenly jettisoned forward, whatever, 15 years in the story, and he's he's in Yale's law school, and he says, and the VO comes back and says something like, you know, the road is rocky, but there's no way around it but through it, which just gives you the sense that he got there by just, like, Pure perseverance grit. and grit, yeah, yeah, and determination and so forth. But it's at that point, I think, that the this Ron Howard effect really starts to take over. And this is why I was saying that the, if you didn't like the book, the, book, the movies, the book on steroids, is that... Some of these narrative things just didn't happen in real life. Yeah. He did not leave Yale to return home after hearing mid uh, dinner that his mother was having a. a yeah. So let's, let's just do a two minute plot summary real quick just to yeah. catch people up. So J.D. Vance, it, it, and it jumps back and forth in time. It's it's not really confusing, but it would be kind of tough to talk about. So half of it's kind of like his legitimately, I think, traumatic youth growing yeah. up in Ohio. And then you see him in the end of his time as a Yale law student. Eventually, you figure out that he went into the Marine Corps after high school and then goes to Ohio State and then ends up at, at Yale Law School. But none of that's really talked about. It just happened, which is one of the things about the bootstrap story that's not, you know, I'm not going to digress here on this, but it's like, if you want to have a bootstrap story, you got to show them, you got to show the boots getting pulled up, you know, yeah. and it just never happened. So did, did a part of you, Luke, wonder if, why didn't they show the military portion? Because it, not that I would get off on that or think that's really compelling or something I'd never seen before, but it, something had to provide you more than what you ended up seeing in the movie in terms of what, where, were the, where did the bootstrap part come from other than Maymaw? Right. Guess. Well, and then he get you know you go in the military and you get on the GI Bill, and yeah. it, and clearly he 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 mines his personal trauma for every bit of drama that he can, so he must not have had a, a rough experience in in the military. He yeah. doesn't even talk about whether he's deployed or not. I don't know any yeah. of those facts. Yeah. 
So we're in, he's in law school and, and the, really the inciting incident that like starts the whole telling of the story is he's, he's about to have his first, this bit and he can't pay for law school. You get, you establish those stakes. He doesn't have the money to pay for his final year of law school. He needs a summer internship of which when you're in late Yale law school, there are literally probably dozens, if not hundreds of law, uh, <laughs> law firms who will take every single person from Yale. So the idea that there's only one interview, this is the interview he has to get right, never really rang true to me. Uh, but he's got this one interview the next day, but he gets a call at a fancy dinner the night before from his sister saying his mother's overdosed again. Dun, dun, dun. Mm-hmm. And so he, there's a bit of familial, not really guilt tripping, but he feels guilt himself. And he decides to drive 10 hours to help his sister figure out what's going on with his mom who just OD'd dun, 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 again. So this, and then the thing that Benji's about to talk about, the Ron Howardification is yep. the, that's the first big divergence from the book, which is he never in the book in real life did not go back to help his sister with his mother's overdose. He just stayed in Yale and worried about it. Yeah. And it's, I think that moment, the deciding to leave, to return home, to help his mother through an overdose didn't happen, first of all. And it's the first Ron Howardization of like what happened to Trigity Vance and it includes a scene I forget the, the author of this piece that I read. Of, it was a Vox film critic who was saying that J.D. Vance had described his background um, as more of a curiosity to his friends at Yale that, and that it helped him stand out. It wasn't yeah. something he shamefully hid from sight. And I remember thinking, but it, and then this author goes on to say, but the adaptation cannot imagine this kind of nuance. And there was no way that the screenwriter, who is Vanessa Taylor, a woman who wrote some episodes of Game of Thrones, she wrote w- alongside uh, Guillermo del Toro, The Shape of Water, and Ron uh-huh. Howard, they weren't going to resist the urge to both sides of this thing. So, of course, they, they made it seem like he was getting treated like shit by these elite liberal Defeat academic. Liberal yeah, academics yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Super briefly to discuss the scene, just so everybody's up to speed here. J.D. Vance is at a super fancy law school dinner, formal dinner, formal, formal dinner, black tie, where he is supposed to be meeting and greeting all the heads of all these really important law firms, including the law firm that we just mentioned earlier that he's desperately trying to get into uh, so that he can not only pay for law school, but also, you know, just get a leg up on his career, right? And what happens during this scene is that poor JD has no idea what to do with all the forks and spoons that come in a formal play setting. And so he ends up having to call his girlfriend panicked so that she can give him instructions on like, you know, which spoon goes with which course. And so this clearly serves a narrative function. It serves to like tell a story about how JD feels like a fish out of water, how his girlfriend's a really nice, sweet, kind, very supportive person. She seems really, really nice. It also, though, not just makes him seem like a fish out of water, kind of makes him seem dumb and kind of makes him seem like he didn't have the forethought to be like, I don't know what black tie dinners are like, so I need to Google this beforehand. Because, I mean, this is, we're talking about like 2010 or something. We're not talking about 1890. You could easily Google the play settings. And what Benji's talking about here with the Ron Howardization, it's not that like they made stuff up for a movie. All movies, even when they're quote unquote based on true stories or inspired by true stories, have a bunch of fictitious elements. But the point though is like, what are you choosing to fictionalize and what's the purpose behind it? So they chose to fictionalize the scene probably because they make it seem like JD's a total outsider when we know from the book that he very much played up his, you know, poor rural upbringing in the way that anybody would to get into an elite university. So he was playing the game. And that's the lack of nuance that Benji was mentioning from the Vox critic is like, 
there is a, a very fascinating and nuanced story to tell here if this guy was a shark and knew exactly how to use the play settings, but then told stories about his childhood the way he seems to have in real life. Like that's some nuance that could be interesting. But now I'm in critic mode and not explaining mode. So let's get back to it before I step over everything that Benji's about to say. Because I, I turned to Ray during that scene without knowing this. I didn't find out that that, that, that moment was fabricated and that the truth was... J.D. Vance had actually leveraged his background as a curiosity. That made so much sense to me because yeah. I'm going to tell you right now, as a white guy who's definitely gotten a, a pretty far in, in my life, thanks in no <laughs> small part due to being a white guy, I have myself, my personal narrative of like growing up this dirt poor kid in a really uh, crime-ridden kind of crappy part of Alaska, yeah. that, that story isn't a curiosity to people too. Yeah. It just is. And he knew that. And to present it as being anything else, it automatically uh, set off alarm bells to me that there's some bullshit going on here. Because yeah. I'm like, and he's like, couldn't tell the fork. And he's like, feeling really ashamed. And Well, and that was the thing. It's like, that it felt was, like an 80s caricature. None, none of that was believable to me. Like, if if you had taken JD, somebody like straight out of the holler, like, like did it, pulled like an Encino man on him, you know, like, yeah. you know, unfroze Brennan Frazier, except in Kentucky and put them down in front of, you know, a formal table setting with forks and spoons, then I could see it. But he's been at Yale for a couple years. Yeah, I know. Before that, he was at Ohio State. None of that was believable to me at all. That yeah. He's just like such a fish out of water. He yeah. doesn't even know how to act. In the it's, year 2011, that type of sto personal narrative story is pretty, it's like disarming in a very comforting way when you're meeting people. They're like, oh, that's really fascinating. They right. don't turn to you and go, Oh, that must have been weird to be about, about around a bunch, bunch of rednecks. rednecks. Yeah, yeah. No, that would never happen. Even if the guy was thinking that, you wouldn't say it out loud in that sort of a setting. It's just not believable. And then the other thing is, 2011, again, if this was happening in 1980, maybe, 2011, you just Google it. You say, what do all the forks and spoons do? Yeah. Five, 15 minutes before you walk in. Yeah, and keep in mind, this is a, a, a film that's supposed to ostensibly somewhat lionize or at least set a flattering light upon its star, right? And J.D. Vance comes across as a complete dick to his girlfriend at the time. Like <laughs> every time I'm like, I, Ray's going, why is, he, why is she even answering the phone at this point? Because of the way he treated her. I mean, he leaves mid-dinner mid to go whine on the phone to her. He basically spends the entire movie whining and uh, disrespecting his, his girlfriend at the time. But I digress. So Ron Howard, uh, the ultimate director for hire, like a premium B-list director, was hired to rescue <laughs> when the when the Disney people, Kathleen Kennedy, is that her name? When they didn't like the way that the uh, Lego movie guys, how they were handling uh, the Han Solo movie, they asked Ron Howard to come off the sidelines wow. and rescue it. I don't know if you knew I that. I don't think so, I realized that. So the no. movie Solo was midstream. It was taken over by, by Ron Howard. Ron Howard and turned into just dreck. Like it was such a crap movie. But anyway. So he mostly makes biopics, one of which was, I think, Apollo 13 was him, right? Apollo 13 was him. That was his first his first attempt at some kind of biopic. And it apparently played that one pretty pretty close to as much as he could. Anyways, to the, yeah. yeah, to the to, to reality. But then he went on to make a few movies that were all filled with historical inaccuracies, varying degrees, like Frost Nixon, Cinderella Man, Beautiful Mind. Frost Nixon basically took a story that was so completely straightforward and actually kind of banal and made it seem like this guy Frost had actually solicited some kind of confession and it actually didn't happen that way at yeah, all. It was kind of confession from Nixon that he had like done, yes. done Watergate. And that he had made, some, that Nixon had made some drunken phone call to Frost once upon a time. That didn't happen. Cinderella Man turned the nemesis of the the boxing movie with uh, Gladiator Man, Russell Crowe. And this guy that is his nemesis in the movie, he basically destroyed the character of this this guy. His name is Max Baer, who was this, um, he was kind of like a likable life of the party and a hero to American Jews. And he was only 25% Jewish, but wore that very proudly. Well, they yeah. just ignored that part of his story. He actually killed a man in the ring 
but felt so grief stricken about it that he actually supported that family, the family of the guy who was killed in the ring with the that rest he, of that his he fought. Wow. The rest of his life, they ignored that and made it seem like he actually bragged about killing him. So wow. this is the kind of stuff he was doing. Then, of course, there was a beautiful mind with the story of uh, John Forbes Nash, right? Is that his name, John Forbes Nash? Yeah. So um, when when he when his he has a tendency to yeah. when he decides to embellish, he does it. Away, away it, from nuance and toward just whatever the most obvious Hollywood trope would be. And then rationalizes it by rationalizes it by saying, well, you know, ultimately the story of John Forbes Nash is just such a compelling, beautiful story, blah, 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 it's, you know, whatever. But the truth is the, the real John Forbes Nash is a great deal more interesting than the one that was portrayed in the movie. So it's kind of same thing with this J.D. Vance thing. It's like if the if the more straightforward version of J.D. Vance had been shown to us, maybe it would have been more interesting. And actually, and I think if it would have been about the grandma who sort of becomes his caretaker and the mom who has this incredibly trauma-ridden existence herself and, and a history of drug addiction, if it was about the two of them sort of coming to terms with each other and J.D. Yeah. Vance wasn't even a part of it, that would have been a much more interesting movie to me because there's actually, there's pathos to mine there. So basically JD goes, takes a 10 hour drive back to, you know, to deal with his mom, who's in, you know, he sees in a, in a hospital bed, absolutely unrepentant, being a terror to the doctors and to his sister, uh, calls him, you know, basically like in a feet liberal for going to Yale, uh, you know, too big for his britches. And then it, the, basically the movie flashes back and forth between the, this present JD and his mom and his sister and this JD mom and sister and grandma in the past of like how, they as a sort of a group had to deal with his mother's drug addiction, mm -hmm. uh, which, and, and, and here's, here's one of these things where I'm like what I was just mentioning about Ron Howard. Like there's, if you're going to make the entire, like half the movie up, which he did, why not make it up or expand upon the things that would make it interesting? Like, for example, how did mom get hooked on like opiates are the biggest story in America right now, or they were at, with all this, the deaths of despair that poor people are living in the Midwest. Yeah. Why not talk about how mom got hooked on pills in the first place? Yeah. You should know that. We never find that out. The most important pieces of like the backstory, if this is a, a movie about generational trauma, we never really see the roots of any of that trauma. And so it makes it interesting that the most skillful version of Ron Howard might not exist anymore. And why I think he's like that he is the consummate director for hire, because the more skillful version of Ron Howard did do this with A Beautiful Mind, because I don't right. know if, you, if you're anything like me. I loved those movies. Frost Nixon was kick-ass. Dude, Beautiful like, Mind is a great... Langella was amazing in yeah. Frost Nixon. So was uh, Michael Sheen. Um, Cinderella Man, great, great movie. But then I Googled every one of them because I'm like, you know <laughs> how you do. You're like, this is a historical movie. I want to actually find out. And then I was like, oh my God, it was all made up. But at least I enjoyed the movies. And I don't actually, there's a part of me that can go, I don't hold it against him because it was an enjoyable movie. But yeah. that's what's so bad about this. this. The filmmaking is just crap. Yeah, I didn't care about any of these characters by the end of it. No. Um, you could come close on Glenn Close if it weren't for the chewing scenery factor, which I kind of get. I mean, she's I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that this her, the Maymont character was quite eccentric, et cetera. But you, you got the closest probably with her the way that she was portrayed. But I got nothing out of the Amy Adams performance or, and or characterization uh, or that character. Like and I found that kind of profoundly sad. So just a, just a real quick point on my own personal story. My mom's story reminds me a lot, minus the addiction addiction to something like uh, opiates, because my mom was an alcoholic and a, right. and a you know like a two and a half packs a day type person. That's partly what killed her young in life. But she wanted a hell of a lot more than she got coming out of Southeast Ohio. Yeah, um, maybe not the valedictorian or whatever the whatever the thing that um, salutatorian. Yeah, yeah, but something kind of adjacent, right? And and big dreams about what she wanted with her life, and she ended up having six kids. 
and I and started young and ended up having like two different uh, families, basically the yeah. family with my dad and family, the previous guy. And so, th- th- but that, you don't get any of that right. from, from her character in the movie. Well, and how rich and interesting would it be for, again, so a salutatorian is like basically the, the runner up to the valedictorian. So she's okay. the second best student in this class, right? Clearly very smart. She's a nurse at the, at the beginning of the movie. We see her lose her job. or Not the beginning of the movie, but the beginning of the chronological narrative because it jumps back and forth. Mm-hmm. How much more interesting would it have been to take five minutes, just five minutes, and sort of show how a, a little bit of that arc, you know? Because she, she gets uh, pregnant with J.D.'s uh, older sister when she's like 18. So there's that, which is a thing that happens in poor rural communities and poor communities in general all the time. Like, People have kids young. That's just like, that's true and it's real. She somehow though managed to become a nurse despite that. So what was the, what was the inciting incident for her that like led her to pop a bunch of pills and then get fired for like literally just the dumbest thing in the world, which apparently this is true. She like skated on like rollerblades through the emergency room of her hospital and they just fired her. So Mm -hmm. like what, what changed in her life? Cause then, then, then Mima and Pat Pat or whatever had, (laughs) had a, they had an abusive relationship as well. So she was a child of generational trauma. She looks like she's going to get out of it. Salutatorian kind of like JD. And actually this is a, this could, could have been a parallel structure that would have been pretty interesting because JD's working on clawing his way out, but his mom a generation earlier had tried to claw her way out and didn't quite get there. So how much more interesting could it have been if we would have been like, let's learn what didn't work for Amy Adams character, JD Vance's mom and how he was then able to sort of break that cycle, right? Because we have three generations of people, the third generation of which is able to break the cycle. Could we have gotten just a little bit more of that backstory if Ron Howard's already committed to either making stuff up or at least diverging from the source material? Why not plumb those depths a little bit for an actual story? Because again, unlike, unlike Cinderella Man, unlike Apollo 13, unlike Frost Nixon, there's no real competition element to it or like you know there's no there's no high drama like there's no you know climactic fight scene all it is is a quiet human drama yeah. so like why not do the quiet human drama actually do it yeah and the and the one thing that they did try to provide as structure for their edit for the f- kind of framework of the storytelling was this job interview and that was fully embellished and or just not that didn't land anyways absolutely not i got a job at the end of this i got an or an internship is what but what was at stake I got to get yeah. back to this to this second interview for a to get an internship. Right. And if I don't get this internship, somehow my life is going to completely fall apart. And actually maybe, again, I'm not trying to like rewrite the script in real time or maybe I am, but like if you would have seen how it only took one slip for his mom to descend into, you know, drug addiction and pill addiction, then maybe it would have actually made that I've got to make it back to this thing. It's, it, it, to me, it's interesting. Let me ask you something. Could you come up with a dumber idea for something to land for either quote unquote side than it ends with a title card? They think, I think he thought that was going to pack a lot of fucking punch when it's like J.D. Vance graduated from Yale Law School in 2013 and went on to do, 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 do. you know, it's like that he got a degree from Yale. That's not going to make anybody feel good on either side. No one really cares. It doesn't really yeah, impress right. anybody. Maybe maybe liberals, I guess. But and then ended up working for Peter Thiel. For, you know? Well, that was actually the part they left out of the card. He like immediately went into a. He became immediately out of college, a partner at a venture capital firm, run by 
probably one of the most just like disgusting venture capitalists in America. Yeah. German born libertarian American, uh, Peter Thiel, former the, PayPal founder, co-founder with Elon Musk. Yeah. The guy who used like his entire, his multi-billion dollar fortune to bankrupt Gawker media because they wrote some tabloid pieces. And the guy who has, is financing a, a, a I literally just wrote about this in one of my newsletters recently, has a company called shoot blue origin no that's the i'll that's, have to look this blue seed Bezos. blue seed is a company that takes mega yachts and like huge uh freighters and turns them into floating cities in international waters for people that can't get green cards so basically it's a it's a floating slave camp in international waters so he doesn't have to obey national laws around uh, visa status and stuff for immigrants unreal but it's the bootstrap thing. So they right. they decided this is the story and instead ignored entirely the backdrop of what led to, as you were describing, the outbreak of uh, opiate addiction, what led to, you know, the American family falling apart and the death of the American dream, quote unquote, because that's a big part of this whole thing. Like, what, what's about what's the story? What happened there? Yeah. What, what is it exactly? Huh. I wonder. Yeah. Did they mention industry at all? Because that's the, that's the no. thing that was just completely ignored and it didn't make any sense to me, except, except for we didn't want it. No one wanted to demonize the companies that have completely fucked over these populations. No, the, what they did was they showed them at the very beginning driving back from Kentucky into Ohio and you just see these massive factories that are boarded up, right? So you get the systematic deindustrialization of Appalachia and the, the Rust Belt of America is used as scene dressing for the backdrop of a story that's all about personal perseverance, not how J.D. Vance's grandparents, you know, she, they, they get knocked up and they move away because they feel a bit of shame, which is another cultural thing that could have been mined for some interesting stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, they end up in Middletown, Ohio, because they could find work at a steel factory that was probably serving, you know, the, the automobile manufacturing industries further north. And then all that stuff goes away, you know, so it's like you're, you're able to create a middle class existence for yourself in this town in southeast Ohio. And then, then by the time J.D.'s a kid, that's gone away, too. So the poverty that they were running away from in Kentucky has worked its way north into southeast Ohio. Mm. And that's never talked about. Yeah, it's uh, Detroit, Flint. It's the coal mines. It's the steel workers. We never want to acknowledge that what created the backdrop that created this. And so I, I thought if there was a movie that somebody wanted to watch about Appalachia, Harlan County, USA is probably the most important mm. uh, film to watch about it. It's a criterion did a, a thing on it. I'm pretty sure it's on many of the streaming services, but it's about the history of the attempt by uh, Harlan County. What is it? Kentucky? Yeah, it's Kentucky. Yeah, Kentucky. Yeah. Um, attempting to organize and form union with the United Mine Workers and it's about Duke Power, which is the equivalent of like in Anaconda and the Copper Mines would be yeah, the equ right. equivalent of Anaconda, preventing basically these workers from organizing and threatening violence and so forth. And, you know, black lung disease was something that was hitting like 32 percent of workers that had been in a career for 25 years or longer. Right. It, even in 2018, by the way, that number is 10 percent and it's rising. Wow. The, the, People, uh, the, resur the resurgence of, of black lung disease. Yeah, it's back. It's, it's like coming up again <sighs> for the same reasons. You have all these um, uh, management types that are trying to skirt around the protocols for safety and so forth. Right. But, yeah. Right. So I kind of had two big questions that I wanted to answer. The first one being, is this a good film? Is this a good piece of art? The answer is no. Some, some other options. If you, if you're interested in this area, Benji just mentioned it, coal miner's daughter, or I mean, sorry, Harlan County, USA. I was thinking, oh, yeah. I saw a note that was like, 
if you rather than reading Hillbilly Elegy, you listen to Dolly Parton, or yeah. and I would say also listen to Loretta Lynn. Mm-hmm. You know, an incredibly gifted you know country singer from back in the day. She's still around. She did an amazing uh, album with Jack White, I think, in the mid two thousands. But she's her career started in the seventies. Uh, Fist City, lot of, the Pill, like uh, really beautiful sort of mournful but also sort of defiant songs about getting by in that sort of world another movie i really love that actually has amy adams the thing that gave me a just an incredible appreciation for her as a young actor was not exactly appalachia but it was in the carolinas a movie called june bug i think it was like 2005 or yeah something. i don't think i saw it it's it's a small indie film and it's like kind of verges on being too cute, but it's about a guy who goes down to, it's actually a story that in, in terms of theme is very, very similar to Hillbilly Elegy. He's like a guy, I think he's a lawyer or something or an art broker. No, he's a lawyer. His, his wife is an art dealer in Chicago and they're like upper crust folks. And she has, she's like kind of into outsider artists and like folk artists and stuff and kind of in a way that like instrumentalizes them and, you know, makes them, you know, cause like a lot of that art world, when you like go find some, you know, backwoods hillbilly who's been painting in this guy's case, it's an artist in this guy's hometown who happens to paint these incredibly elaborate panoramic civil war scenes, except instead of guns, everybody's carrying penises. It's just hilarious. It's like mm. a funny, cute, weird movie but it's about it came out around the same time as like Thumbsucker I think yeah I think so about about the same time and it was kind of it was the it was the role that put Amy Adams on the map because she plays a young version of maybe the older mom in uh in Hillbilly Elegy where she's got a baby and a husband she doesn't really like or she's pregnant I think and and it's all about how this guy sort of he's he has an intense amount of shame about where he came from and then by the end ends up feeling very sort of protective of these people as his wife and his wife's sort of upper crust friends are trying to like mine their the pain of this region for wealth you know so yeah, it feels like that that filmmakers like Ron Howard, obviously J.D. Vance as a person, can't resist the hyper-individualist narrative of, you know, American right. exceptionalism. I think that's right. really what this comes down to. I mean, I think a movie like um, John Sayles made a, a movie about West Virginia coal mines um, called Mate Wan. But again, what does it center around? Union, organizing, yeah, like labor. labor. Yeah, yeah right. that's it. And uh, But it's a, it's a great movie. I think that it, it's really difficult, I think, for probably for American audiences in general to reconcile and to actually think about what it means when labor is treated this way, you know, like we have to find some kind of individual narrative. Otherwise we're not interested in the storytelling. Right. And again, this is, you wouldn't want this to be, you know, you don't want to try to like inject a narrative that isn't there on somebody's life. But again, this kind of gets me back to what, like the kind of, maybe the kind of person J.D. Vance is in general, but also the age that he wrote this memoir. It's like, you know, I, when I was 27 or 25 or 24 or whatever, I, I thought I got by on my good looks, charm and intelligence a lot more than I do now because I started recognizing, you know, there's no question his mom is a person who struggles with selfishness or has so much pain that she's unable to sort of give him as much as she needs. It also seems that his grandmother struggled with that too and is able, and I thought there were these beautiful moments that could have been turned into something where you think about how I've heard stories about like kids who have amazing grandparents, but those grandparents weren't particularly good to the mom or the dad in the situation. You know what I mean? Like they, they, as, as a grand, as a parent matures into a grandparent, they become better to the grandkid than they were to their own kid. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like that's a powerful narrative as Mm -hmm. well. And that seems to be what happened with mama or Mima. So there's like all this opportunity for that stuff and it's just not there. But I also think like if JD, like in 20 years, 
could J.D. Vance have written a better memoir about his life and the sort of the or if he would have made it done a little bit of reporting on his own existence rather than just like writing a, a simple first person narrative like would you have seen like oh man what kind of stress did it put on my grandparents relationship when grandpa lost his job you know yeah and in that way it's really like pathologically insulting I think the and way self-centered, that, yeah. yeah, that the only couple of disposable lines given to the culture of that entire region, the people who live there is like where the funeral procession, the, all the yeah. people standing with their ball caps next to their chest. And briefly, the scene Benji's talking about here is a uh, funeral procession that JD and his family are a part of as they're driving through town, like following the hearse everybody in town, whether they know them or not, like stops, gets out of their car and like covers their heart solemnly as the funeral procession goes by. It's actually one of the more affecting moments in the movie, but it's texture that the film doesn't seem to know what to do with. JD's advance is like, what's going on there? And Mamaw's like, we're hill people. We pay respect for the dead. That's what it means. Like, yeah. can we please get some uh, understanding of why there's so much misery. Right. Take that a step further because there's so little in your life and there is so much death around you that you like ritualize these things that are brutally, brutally common to you, which is the premature death of the majority of the people who work in these mines or whatever. And at the end, it's really hard not to skip to the end and be like, this is a guy who goes on to get involved in Republican politics. He's a, he's a, he is a right. currently a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, which is like a bastion of neoconservatism, which politics, you know, like whatever, if you're a neoconservative, more power to you. But the point here is that neoconservative politics are what sort of stripped. That's right. That's what I'm saying. It's stripped like this, to this region bare and then offshored all those jobs. He went on to basically be part of the machinery that helped deny a living wage to multiple generations, including the generation that brought him up. Right. There's just a fucking exquisite irony in that situation, right? In this this idea that the denial of this living wage, this denial of like health and frankly, like a, a life worth living, right? Yeah. It has been created to the benefit of a few, which is exactly what American Enterprise Institute believes in. So it's like, all right, well, he went on to basically uh, be part of the machinery that perpetuates this this narrative. So, yeah. but then he starts a foundation, very uh, Reagan economics kind of an idea, a little bit of trickle down. He starts a foundation to like help treat, oh, to, like work at the back end of the the problem instead of the front end of it. Right. right? So, yeah. And I also think he started a nonprofit that like uh, incubates businesses in Cincinnati. Right. So it's like, cool. <laughs> Basically, it's like, well, if you lose your job in the coal mine, you just learn to code. It's that whole it idea is. of you, like, oh, man. You beat me to the the punchline there. Yeah. <laughs> just learn to code, kids. Yeah. Who was it that said that? It was, it was recently? Was it Rahm Emanuel or somebody like that? Oh, man. It's, it was Rahm Emanuel, wasn't I it? I think maybe. Yeah, yeah. So that's the other thing. It's like this this idea that like what the only thing we owe poor folks, the only thing we owe to the people down in mines, whether they're the, the, the coal mines of Kentucky or the copper mines of Butte. There's an amazing uh, new podcast called Death in the West that I'm obsessed with that deals with the copper mines of Butte, Montana, where people there, it wasn't black lung. It's a thing called silicosis. The average life expectancy of a miner in Butte, Montana at the turn of the century was 40 years old, 42 years old, maybe. Uh, and so the only thing we owe these people, the people that, and, and again, Butte Copper electrified America, it electrified the world. It is, mm -hmm. people were like, hey, Edison made Butte happen. It was actually, no, Butte made Edison happen. The only way we could electrify this entire nation and the world was with cheap Butte Copper, right? Yeah. So the people that pulled that out of the ground, fast forward to 2016, the people that are still pulling stuff out of the ground, 2020, 
the only thing we owe them once we take their industry away from them, uh, their livelihood, completely, you know, rape and pillage the land that they grew up in, that they feel, again, hill people love the country they grew up in. They feel a connection to the land that's, yeah. in, in, you know, in deep, generations deep. The only thing we owe them once we take all that away from them is the opportunity to retrain themselves as coders and then go to work for Peter Thiel's next startup. Yep. That's the solution to everything. <sighs> oh, man. And it, the movie kind of bookends that. It starts with the prosperity gospel for some fictitious preacher, but it ends with yeah. the prosperity gospel of J.D. fucking Vance. It does. Because he, he does like a twice I've needed to be rescued. The first time it was Mayma who saved me. The second, it was what she taught me. So basically it's like I was good to go. And here is my bootstrap story. That where we came from is who we are, but we choose every day who we become. My family's not perfect, but they made me who I am and gave me chances that they never had. My future, whatever it is is our shared legacy. And then the first title card is that uh, that Yale Law School thing, which is provides him all the bona fides he needs to uh, for us to believe that this was a profound story of success and bootstrap achievement. Yeah, yeah. you too can uh, graduate from Yale Law School and uh, work for Peter Thiel from Mithril Capital or whatever the name of the company yeah, is. Mithril Capital was the was where he was. A, he became a partner out of law school at Mithril Capital. Because that's the other thing that's advanced, by the way. It's not only become a coder, it's also move. So you're oh, yeah, you gotta go. I love that your idea about the attraction to the land. Like It's just so arrogant that that is a common refrain and uh the way that people the way that uh idiots i should say talk about people that live in the appalachians is like just move move man no we fucking love they love people love where they live well and here's the thing and i don't know if this is a cultural nothing about how expensive it is to move absolutely and i don't know if this is a cultural thing or if it's a class thing but my family again a very stable family but you know working class stock i would say my grandpa was a mechanic in the air force my grandma uh raised a bunch of awesome kids aunts and uncles of mine uh, and then was like literally the linchpin that didn't just hold her family together, but held the entire neighborhood together. The, that was my, my grandma's house was like the gathering place for the, for a bunch of kids in North Spokane. There is such an intense pressure to stick near kin that my mom's entire family basically lives between Francis Avenue and the Southern tip of Chatteroy, Washington. It's so mm-hmm. like the entire family is within a 20 minute drive of each other. Yeah. And you know, when the next generation of kids, my cousins have sort of moved away, gone away. My, you know, my, uh, my cousin Nikki is a Spanish language speaker. She loves it. She's been, she was living down in Mexico when coronavirus hit, like it took coming to terms for that, for both those generations to understand that, you know, this third generation of Renzes, Baumgarten Renzes, might move away because you just don't do that, you know, when you're, when family is like one of the most deeply uh, binding and cohesive things. It's like you live your whole life for your family. I think if my mom hadn't married two men in the U.S. military, she would have stayed where she was. Her entire family, the rest of the family, my half brother died of severe alcoholism and addiction, and he lived in fucking Athens, Ohio. You know, he. Well, in Athens, Ohio is where I spent a little bit of time, and that's despite being a college town, there are places in Athens, Ohio where people still have dirt floors. Yeah. It's wild. Mm -hmm. I don't think I realized he was in Athens. Yeah. Yeah, Corning. Corning is like a, about 20 minutes north of, of Athens. It's in that same same region. Like Athens, Cambridge, kind of like, south, yeah. what is that, southeast of Columbus? Yeah, yeah. yep, exactly. Oh, so I, I do think, going back to that whole uh, prosperity gospel thing, just for a second, been thinking about this a lot. I grew up in an evangelical household. This prosperity gospel guy at the beginning of this movie is very evangelical. I got halfway through a, a, a kind of a pretty scholarly book called The Enchantments of Mammon. It was like the 500-year dance with the devil that the evangelical church, going all the way back to like the origins of evangelicalism in England, the 500-year dance they've had with capitalism, basically, and and proto-capitalism and primitive accumulation. And, and all along the way, there is a bifold message 
that actually gets summed up in the beginning of this movie for for evangelical believers. It's God. If you're if you're good to God, God will take care of you. Meaning you'll be wealthy, right? And that's what's kind of in modern times has become the prosperity gospel. But this starts at the very beginning. So so that's that's the gospel that rich people get. God, you deserve your wealth. You deserve your happiness. You deserve everything that God gives you on this earth. If you're not wealthy, the vast majority of people, you can still be an evangelical. And guess what? You don't get your gifts in life. You get your gifts in heaven. So the pain that you're suffering at the hands of the person that might be, you know, worshiping next to you in the pew every week is actually the wages that you earn in life to earn your eternal reward in death. And I found that when I, when I was sort of framed in those terms in this book, and we're talking about, you know, the, you know, 16, 1700s, some of these people are like, <laughs> like the official chaplain for the British East India company being like, you know what? God wants us to kill Indians, you know, yeah. go to that continent and just subjugate. If, yeah. if we, if God didn't want us to do it, we wouldn't be winning. Yeah. Sort of that's, stuff. that's how the movie, that's why the movie beginning with the manifest destiny stuff, it's, it's, it's really, it's brutal. It's, 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 well, it's also totally appropriate. <laughs> Absolutely. Like unintentionally appropriate. Yeah. Unintentionally appropriate. Yeah, exactly. And so it, that made, it just like blew my mind because those were, those messages, even though they're four or 500 years old, were exactly the same kinds of things I was hearing in the pews in Chateau, Washington in, you know, 1980 through 1996 yeah. or seven or whatever. And that kind of in its own sense is a bootstraps narrative. You don't get your boots all the way up until death, but you get your eternal reward. This is like arch conservative storytelling about normativity. Right. So whiteness, masculinity, heterosexuality. Yeah. That is what really this movie is about. I mean, one of the, I didn't read any like academic critiques of this film, but a guy who writes for the the rap, Alonzo Duralde wrote this. He said, Hillbilly LG isn't interested in the systems that create poverty and addiction and ignorance. It just wants to pretend that one straight white guy's ability to rise above his surrounding means that there's no excuse for anyone else not to have done so well. Exactly. The, the role of whiteness, the role of, of privilege just isn't even remotely acknowledged in this. And I think no. that's why that, that scene with the forks and the the feeling like, oh, I'm a fish out of water is, is, is so key. They yeah. know it's it's critical to the to, if they want to pull off this this bullshit story. The sleight of hand, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, because if they showed the reality, which is that shit's treated as quaint and isn't he so charming, yeah. is a story about whiteness and masculinity I, and nor and normativity. I, Gonzaga's no Yale, but it's like the best college around here. I, you, I, I, with the help of my parents, wrote a college admissions essay that was like, hey, I grew up in a trailer and then firestorm happened in our trailer almost burned down and I lost all of my baby stuff. And yeah. it was really sad. And I, but I've had a supportive family and I worked real hard, which wasn't true because I had undiagnosed ADD and I'm actually a pretty terrible student, but a pretty good test taker. And you know, you just, you embellish the parts that are, and then all of a sudden I'm a uh, merit scholar for no reason at Gonzaga because I have a story that's a little bit interesting. Right. Yeah. Well, it's like the, it's like the apocryphal quote from uh, Steinbeck about temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Yeah. Um, I, I think about that all the time. So this quote may or may not be John Steinbeck, but Ronald Wright uh, quoted it in his book, A Short History of Progress from 2004. Quote, John Steinbeck once said, socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. So the idea is that the American dream is such an intoxicating fantasy, and it is a fantasy for the vast, vast, vast majority of people. And it's getting, it's even more of a fantasy as we go on. Right. It might have been attainable for our grandparents. It's certainly not that way for the vast majority of us. 
but it's such an intoxicating and alluring dream that workers in America see more in common with themselves and their bosses than they do with the other workers that are toiling alongside them, right? Solidarity is great for the exploited, but I'm just a temporarily embarrassed millionaire, so I don't have to worry about building power or building solidarity because I'm going to be a boss someday. Yeah, that this, the, the first sermon that's given in the beginning of this movie on the radio, it, it speaks to that so so perfectly. It's yeah. like, and at the same time, uh, lurking directly beneath that is this idea that they, it's almost like a tacit acknowledgement of privilege. And it's this the term white trash, yeah. which has always been a favorite of mine. Um, during my collegiate years, deep diving into experimental filmmaking, whiteness, masculinity, et cetera, I read this essay once. It was specifically about the, the term white trash and how it's problematic to say white trash. What oh, you're yeah. basically saying is you're not leveraging what's so fucking good about being white. Yeah. So we're discarding you. Literally, you we're are refuse. You, trash. you yeah. are trash because you are not using your whiteness. You are appropriately. Yeah. You are not. You are not worthy. Damn it. Of being white. So we're calling you white trash. We're otherizing uh, white people. And I yeah. think that's a really big part of how uh, Appalachian culture is depicted in, in uh, mainstream culture in, in the United States. And this movie's only solution to that, again, to this guy just wrapped it up perfectly. One straight white guy's ability to rise above it all is the only story worth telling. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's why another another amazing piece of uh, media about actually mostly about Harlan County, Kentucky. It's it's kind of pulpy. The TV series Justified, mm. you know, it's about mostly about organized crime and selling drugs and, and stuff like that. But it's it it shows the resourcefulness of poverty, the the resourcefulness you need in order to make a life for yourself. And when it's good, the the fourth season of Fargo does the same thing, explaining how. When you are excluded from the real economy, the mainstream economy, the legal economy, people end up going, starting to break the law just as a way of getting by. They create their own economy they create the black market. They mm. create, you know, uh, the illicit drug trade and whatnot. So I have one more thing to say about the representation of whiteness. It was a big note that Ray and I both kind of yeah, point, pointed out. It, we had this moment of like kind of looking over like, have you noticed? So. At the beginning of the movie, we're supposed to believe in this kind of, you know, oh, golly shucks. Oh, aren't these kind of, aren't they neat? Aren't they nice people? They're, they're charming and they seem like people I would really get along with. I really like the, the Vance family or whatever. But then I always do this thing where I'm watching these movies that are depicting succinctly white culture in the United States of what would an interaction with a black person look like with this family, right? So I had that yeah. rolling around in my back of my mind. And it wasn't, wasn't a few scenes later that we saw the first of probably half a dozen interactions that were all presented as so totally innocuous. Did you see the way that black characters in this movie were portrayed? Every single time, it's completely innocuous. There's not a there's not a hint of any sort of friction, any sort of misunderstanding, oh, yeah. any sort of prejudice, any sort of stereotyping, nothing. And it seems to both of us, we, we just kind of went, his boss at his job, the cop who shows up to rescue yeah, JD, right, right. the guy at the gas station where he's just like hanging out in his car and asking about the Wi-Fi, which was a really weird scene. Yeah. So there was like all these interactions where it was like, no, we swear th these people are good. They're 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 cool. To, they're cool to black people. Yeah. So we right. can tick that box. Right. So nice, nice to black people. They done. might they might hit their kids, but at least they don't use the N word. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 It's, it seemed like okay, they tried a little too hard. Yeah. Yeah. And his, his girlfriend and now wife in real life and in the movie right. is a, is a South Asian person. And she, who clerked for, yeah, cause it's no, ra no racist white man has ever dated or married an Asian woman. Right. But she in real life clerked for uh, Brett Kavanaugh, by the way. I, th I think that's a good place to stop. <laughs> but you know, JD Vance's mom sees a picture of his soon to be uh, wife 
and says, what is she? Yeah. And he goes, she's Indian ma. And he's like, well, she's pretty. And yeah. that's, that's enough. You know, it's like, Ding. wow, man, she, it's kind of uncouth, but at least, you know, but she's not a racist. And yeah. so it's like, it's making palatable, like kind of sort of checking off I'm the box. I'm surprised she didn't say she's exotic. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's checking all the box for like the liberals that are going to be watching this without problematizing any of the aspects of systemic oppression that lead to racism and and lead to you know the, these lives and deaths of despair that have been happening you know or the history of the Scotch Irish which basically led to the foundation of the KKK which was all about hey can all of us white Europeans that didn't actually come from the same country all get together and say we look alike and we should make fun of black people yeah right yeah but they couldn't go there all right so if this is the uh, Christmas episode uh, and we're <laughs> going to do, do a quick gift guide of things you should watch or consume instead of hillbilly elegy I think it would be Junebug I think it would be coal miner's daughter uh oh i liked a a movie called this boy's life which isn't has nothing to do with appalachia but it has to do with like this quote-unquote like poor white culture it's actually set in skagit county which oh yeah washington skagit county um this boy's life story of tobias wolf who's an american author novelist dicaprio plays the part it's an autobiographical robert de niro plays his abusive stepfather his mother is played by in a kind of bev style character is not a, a drug addict or anything but she tends to marry lots of different men and are involved with Tobias's life and um Ellen hmm. Barkin plays her it's really good really really good movie well and while we're going like why not just watch uh, Stand By Me again you know yeah or Stand By <laughs> Me yeah there you go <laughs> or Mate Juan Mate Juan was on the list too John Sayles one of his first movies I don't I don't know anything about that movie yeah it's a it's West Virginia coal mine uh labor fight movie oh awesome um oh then you said Harlan County USA Bonnie Prince Billy is in uh yeah Mate Juan oh that's yeah. awesome yeah Bonnie Prince Billy yeah all right, y'all. This has been Range. This has been Benji, Wade, Luke Baumgarten. This is kind of a, maybe we'll do this again if it worked out well. A little bit of uh, media criticism. and uh, Hopefully a movie we like. Yeah, it would be nice to do a movie. Maybe we should do uh, the the movie about, oh, Battle of Algiers. Oh, my God. Yes, please. That'd be right, badass. So maybe, in a couple, maybe in a couple months, let's do Battle of Algiers. Okay. Sounds right. good. Sounds good. Thanks, Benji. Thanks, man. Well, I thought that was delightful. Thanks, Benji, for coming on. Briefly, and I'll uh, let you get back to your week, everyone. I, I collated all the stuff we talked about, all the media we talked about. It's in the show notes if you want to go find something to read or listen to or watch in lieu of reading or watching Hillbillyology. There's a lot of stuff. Keep you occupied for a good chunk of the, say, Q1 of 2021. There's enough content to keep you occupied. Secondly, as always recently, the interview was recorded at uh, Speak Studios in downtown Spokane. Safe, socially distanced, easy to get to. Uh, Nice people, good folk, as they say. And finally, if you like what we're doing, whether or not you like the movie episode, if you like the larger project that is Range, uh, and you have the means, uh, please consider becoming a member at rangemedia.co. We've said this in the past, but... We want to try to keep this free for everybody. So the content is not paywalled. I mean, it would really suck to just uh, do all these episodes about the plight of poor people and then be like, yeah, sorry, poor people, you don't you don't get access to this content. <laughs> uh, that would suck. But that does mean that if we're going to make this a sustainable enterprise, uh, we're going to need folks who can afford to pay for the content to do so. So 10 bucks a month, 100 bucks a year, uh, gotten a few new members over the holiday season. Uh, tremendously appreciative for that. So thank you so much. All right, y'all. Next week, uh, God, I don't know what I'm going to do for the episode next week. Uh, it's either going to be an interview, you know, no, I'm, I'm just going to keep you in, in suspense. So see you next week with something awesome. Uh, in the meantime, happy new year.
so deeply, deeply ideal. It's so deeply, deeply ideal. <laughs> it's so deeply, deeply ideological.